0: listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. At this point of the the, the gathering, I want to pray, and then we're going to sit, I'm going to read the passage, and we're going to preach it, but we're going to do a little bit different this morning, not because it's the way you have to do it, but because I think it's good uh, every once in a while to just remember that the reason why we gather isn't to hear what I have to say or what Bill has to say, it's to hear from God. And we have a confidence uh, in the scriptures um, that these are the very words from the God of the universe to us and so we can be confident here in a moment when I read this, this is the God of the universe speaking to us. And so as we stand just in reverence to God, we're gonna incline our ear and our heart to what he has to say to us this morning in Colossians chapter one, it'll be on the screen if you wanna follow along. It says, he, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful that what I said a bit ago is true, that we don't gather in here to hear you know, any thoughts I have or um, what Bill might have to say, but we gather week in and week out to hear from you. And so I pray, God, that even as your word was read that as it's proclaimed, as it's preached, God, that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would remind us of the good news of the gospel, that we are loved by you despite the fact that this is the farthest thing from what we deserve from you, and yet you give it to us as a gift of your grace. And so help us as your church today, God, to just really rest in the truth of your grace toward us this morning. And when we say in a little bit, uh, when we say go and be the church, God, would we be be further convinced of your love for us and compelled by your love to go and live our lives the way you say we should. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you. I hope you're doing well. If we haven't met, my name is Clint, one of the pastors on staff, and I have the opportunity and the privilege to uh, preach God's word this morning, again, from Colossians chapter one. So if you have a Bible, I would love if you turn there. Uh, it will be on the screen as we walk through it, but i just love if you, brought a copy of God's Word. If you don't have one with you, there's some in the seat back around you or you can open on your phone or feel free to follow along on the screen, whatever you would prefer to do. But that's where we're gonna spend our time this morning. Um, Last week, if you were here, uh, Bill mentioned that we are taking a break from a sermon series that we've been in for quite a while in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're gonna spend really just the month of July, first week of August, just kind of resting in the truth of what it means to be a Christian Christian Uh, what discipleship means, what it means to actually follow after Jesus with our lives. So what does the Christian life look like? And Bill talked last week, uh, preached a sermon from Romans chapter 12, verse two, that says, it it was something that kind of marked the Christian life. One thing that we shouldn't be and one thing that we should be. And he says, do not be what? Conformed, great, you guys are way better than the 9 a.m. More coffee, you've been awake longer. Do not be conformed, that's what we shouldn't be, but he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but um, I'm gonna waste your time for just one minute here. Bill makes it his, uh, his job to talk a lot about the 80s and what it was like growing up in the 80s. And so I feel like it's my job to talk about what it was like to grow up in the 90s, and the early 2000s, right? So when I heard him say last week, were uh, talking about the, the Transformer show, and he was like, Autobots, transform and roll out. And he said, the church, that's what we're supposed to do, transform and then roll out. You know what I thought? Ludicrous. Not the word, the song, the rap, you're the rapper, ludicrous, roll out. I'm not a good singer, but you, so anybody with me? A couple of the, those early on millennials, we gotta have some love here, but. So he says, do not be, it was a waste of our time, all right, but we're fine. Do not be conformed, he says, but be transformed. And what that means for us is that the Christian life is a process. The Christian life is not you, you put your faith in Christ and you arrive. It's a process, we're all a work in in progress, right? We, we are all on our way to maturing, right? So no matter how long you've been a Christian, how much of the Bible you know, or even how much you have memorized, um, there isn't a single one of us who have arrived. We're all a work in progress. And so as long as you follow Jesus, as you are uh, living your life as a disciple or follower of Jesus, what's going on is you are continually being changed from who you are into who God wants you to be, okay? And so for some of you, when you hear that, you, it's easy for you to say, Amen. Amen. God's changing me from who I am to who I'm going to be. Because at the end of the day, your life is pretty good. Your circumstances are okay. You feel happy about how you're growing, happy about how God's changing you. But for others of you, you hear that the entirety of the Christian life is one where God meets you where you are to make you into who He wants you to be. And it's discouraging because you don't feel like you're growing and changing at all, you feel stuck. And if anything, you feel like you might be moving in the wrong direction, right? You might be going backwards. Maybe you're struggling with things you never struggled with before. Maybe you're not as disciplined as you used to be to spend time in God's word or whatever it is for you. And on top of that, you look around at everyone else's life, and it seems like their life is great, and they're growing and changing, and their circumstances continue to improve. It seems like their life is just an upward trend, right? Up and to the right, And then, but you feel like all the more, like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with with my life, why is my life not getting better like theirs? Why do I consistently struggle when it seems like life is so easy for the people I know? And oftentimes what happens is that we allow those questions in our head, those doubts that we have to push us further away from God rather than to him for answers because we think it's up to us to figure out what's wrong with us, to figure out and get over our doubts before we can come to God. And what happens is when you allow those doubts to push you from God rather than to him, um, it's not that you don't get answers to your questions. It's just that you don't have the voice of God, the truth answers to your questions. You get the voice of the enemy or the voice of this world. So, so here's what happens. It, one of two things happens when we don't go to God, when we have those thoughts in our heads that says, why do I feel like I'm constantly struggling and no one else does? Why do, what's wrong with me? Right? One of two things happens. And it depends on how you're seeking to live your life right? So if, if you're not trying to follow Jesus with your life, and we can be honest, this is church, I know, all right? But, but you can be honest. If you're not actively pursuing Jesus or trying to live the life of a disciple of Christ, um, when you think what's wrong with me, the voice of God's not there because you're, you're not going toward him. So the enemy speaks into that. And the, and the Bible calls him the tempter or the deceiver. And when you think what's wrong with me, he's going to say, there's nothing wrong with you. What's wrong is the people around you or the circumstances that, that you're in, right? That's what he's gonna say. And, and what, he's gonna, what he wants, ultimately, is he's gonna say, you don't need to go to God for answers. What you need is new friends, or a better job, or more money, or a different spouse, or different kids, right, <laughs> or, or what you need is another drink, or whatever it is in the moment, he wants you to think you don't, you don't need to go to God for the answers, what you need is a change in circumstances or a change in the people around you and he's gonna continually invite you down a path that promises satisfaction that never lasts. And so you spend your life chasing the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and, next thing and that's it. Or if you are trying to follow Jesus and honor God with your life, you have that question, the doubt in your mind that says what's wrong with me and the enemy who the Bible also calls the accuser He speaks into that question in your heart and your mind, and you think, what's wrong with me? And he says, you know what's wrong with you. What's wrong with you is that you continually do the things that you say you're never going to do anymore. And you're not changing, you're not growing, your life's not moving like everyone else's because God has abandoned you, because he doesn't love you anymore, if he ever did in the first place, because you're unlovable and you know it. This is the way the enemy speaks sin as the accuser, right? And, And the thing is, in both of those scenarios, even though the strategy is different, the enemy's goal is the same, is to keep us from God. To keep us from going to God for answers to those questions and whatever doubts and questions bubble up in our lives. And more specifically, he wants to keep us from believing that it is up to us to go to God, that God has come to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? And so what we're gonna see this morning in Colossians chapter one is regardless of where you're at on that spectrum, Right, whether you feel good about your life and your circumstances and how God's changing you or you feel stuck and you're, you're wondering what's wrong with you but no matter where you are, what we're gonna see in Colossians 1 is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel will meet you where you are to make you into who God wants you to be. All right, that's the point this morning. I want us to see this in, in Colossians chapter one. And I know I read, started in verse 15, but we're gonna look really for the next couple of weeks, verses 21, 22, and 23. And the reason why is because these three verses are a beautiful overview of what the gospel does in the life of a Christian and when, what our response should be like. This is what Jesus does to us and how we should respond, what the Christian life should look like here in these three verses. This is sort of like a summary statement for the Christian life. Um, and so where Paul starts here in this passage is he answers the question for us that we've been talking about already of what's wrong with me? Why do I feel stuck? Why do I feel like I'm struggling when no one else is? What's, what's wrong here? He's gonna answer that question for us. In, in verse 21, let's look at that together. He says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So remember, we said these are a summary statement of the Christian life, and since that's true, where Paul starts to me is a little bit weird. It's a little bit interesting, right? It's, he starts with what used to be true about them, not what's true about them now. And think about this, so say if I met someone and they come up to me and they say, hey, tell me about yourself. I'm gonna say some version of three things. That I'm a husband, I'm a father, and I'm a pastor. Because that's what's true about me now. So tell me about you. Well, I'm a husband, I've been married for 11 years. Um, uh, my wife and I have three kids, two boys and a girl. We have another girl on the way in September, praise God. If you see my wife, you can tell. That's very evident that she's pregnant. Um, and uh, I would say I'm, on, I'm a pastor on staff at a church in Savannah. And I would say those things because that's what's true about me now, okay? Um, this would be weird if someone said, hey, tell me about you. Well. I used to be seven, I used to live at home with my parents, I was an only child, and we lived in Leesburg, Georgia. And if I did, that, that would be weird, right, to just start there, and I wouldn't say that because that's what used to be true about me, it's not what's true about me now, but where Paul does is he starts with the past. Why does he do this? Why does he start with what used to be true about him? I think the reason is because... He's writing this letter not just to tell them about the Christian life, about how it's a process, and about how God wants to meet you where you are to make you into who he wants you to be. He also wants to remind them how far they've come. It's not just, hey, look at what God wants to do in your life. He wants to start with, look at what he's already done. And that's why he starts in the past, right? Because here's the thing. One of the the primary reasons that most of us feel stuck or feel like we are not as far along in our life as we should be is because instead of looking to God and focusing on what he wants to do in us, we spend our time looking at the people around us and comparing ourselves to them, and so we feel like we're not moving at all. all right, so a couple months ago, I was in the car with my son, we were on the Truman, and I was doing what you should not do, which is just driving the left lane. If you do that, you shouldn't do that. Um, I was just driving the left lane, and my son's with me, and this car passes us on the right side, which is like where his, he was sitting. And he turns to me and he says, Dad, we're going backwards. And I'm like, no, buddy, we're not, right? And he's gonna be a litigator one day. He didn't give up on an argument that quick, neither do I. Um, So we kind of went head to head on this. And he goes, no, we're going backwards. And I was like, no, let me tell you why we're not going backwards. No matter what I did, I couldn't convince him that we weren't going backwards. And the reason why was because, you know, we looked at the car and it was going this way. So he thought we were going this way. And, And the reason why he thought that wasn't because he didn't know the difference between forward or backward. It was because he had the wrong perspective. Right, Instead of focusing on the car we were in and where we were going, he was focused on the car beside us. And so despite the fact that we were going really fast in the right direction, he thought we were going backwards. And I think this is what Paul is saying in verse 21. He wants us to get our focus off of how far we have left to go and how behind we feel and remember how far we've come. Remember what God has already done in your life. Remember what used to be true about you. And he describes it in three ways in verse 21. He says, and you." who were once, what, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So this is the three ways that he describes life apart from Jesus or before we place our faith in Christ for salvation. Three ways, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And what we need to know is these aren't three separate categories that just kind of exist by themselves. It's not just three mutually exclusive things. These are three things that flow out of one another, that build on one another. So what he's saying is, is that we were alienated from God which led to us being hostile in mind, which has led to us doing evil deeds, right? A better way to say it is that the hostile mind and the evil deeds that that we have in our life, that exist in our lives, it flowed out of this reality that we were alienated to him, right? So alienated is not a word that we use a ton, right? When I hear alien, I think Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones, black suits, right? Anyone else? Or signs, Mel Gimson, Cornfield, just throw water on it, nobody? Tough crowd, okay? So, when I hear aliens, we think E.T. We're all on the same page, right? That's what we think, aliens. Um, but, but this word literally, it means to be estranged, to be cut off from. And in the first century specifically, being an alien meant that where you are is not your home. Okay, so what the Bible's saying here in Colossians 1, when, when it says we're alienated from God, it's saying is, is the, the place that we were created to be at home the place that actually can produce the sort of rest and joy and contentment and satisfaction that we all want in our lives, that home is nearness to God. It's relationship with God the Father. But he says we're alienated, we're cut off, we're separate from that because of our sin we are separated from God in the sense of being home. The idea too is not just that we're we're now homeless, it's that our entire existence apart from God is this Ache in our soul that just wants to be home, but no matter what we do uh, or what we try, we can't get there. This is what Paul's saying. He says, You were alienated. And 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 what he says there, again, this, this builds, this builds. So we were alienated, which led to us being what? Hostile in mind. So this word hostile, it means to be an enemy or to oppose. And the word mind mind here is not like what we would say. So we say mind, we're just talking about our thoughts, but this is deeper than that. So this this mind in the original language is the idea of what you think, but what you feel, your desires, your motivations that lead to what you do, right? This is what this is talking about. And Paul says that all of that in us, the things we think, feel, desire, what motivates us, all of that is, uh, is hostile toward God. It's in opposition to God and his kingdom, which means we long to be at home with him, And there is nothing or no one that could ever possibly satisfy the ache in our soul and yet we spend our lives trying to find meaning and purpose in things and people other than him. Even though we know that deep down he's the only one that can satisfy the ache in our soul, we spend our lives trying to find meaning and purpose in things like our jobs or our spouses or what people think about us or our kids or what they accomplish or what we can accomplish or how much money we have or what we can buy with it. On and on and on we can go. And this is what Paul means when he says that we're alienated and hostile in mind. And then he says that that leads to us doing what he calls evil deeds. Basically, what this means is that we live out of this far from God, broken perspective on life, and so we sin, and he calls it evil deeds. And the challenge with that, especially in a culture, in a context like ours, when I hear, when I say something like evil deeds, our first thought is, I'm not evil. I mean, there are people who are evil, but I'm not evil. I mean, I've definitely sinned, I've definitely done some things that I shouldn't have done and I wouldn't do again if I had the opportunity, but I'm not evil. That's our response there. And the thing about these evil deeds, what we need to know is, sometimes they look like what we would call evil, but sometimes it looks like what we would call righteousness, right? And this is why when Jesus tells a story about salvation in Luke chapter 15, story we call the prodigal son, um, he tells a story about a father and two sons who both leave home, right? And if you're familiar with the story, then you know what I'm talking about. If not, what happens in the story is the younger brother goes to his father and he basically severs relationship with him. And he says, I want my inheritance now, which is saying, I'm done with you. I want no relationship. I only want what you can give me. And he takes his inheritance and he leaves and he goes to a faraway country. He says he squanders it on all these sorts of things. He basically, what's happening is he leaves the father because he thinks that he can find a home that's better than the one with him. Right, this is the younger brother. Um, and that's how we think about leaving home. That's the only way, that you just run from God. But there's another way to leave home in the story because what happens when the younger brother comes to his senses and says, man, I, I would be better off as a servant in my father's house, and he comes back in his guilt and his shame, the father sees him, what's he do? he runs out to him and he lavishes him with this with grace and love and he embraces him and he kisses him and then he, they kill the fattened calf and they throw this massive party and when they get back, the Bible says that they all celebrated because the son that was dead is now alive but the one that was lost is now found. It says they all celebrated but the truth is they didn't all celebrate because the older brother went outside pouting on the front porch and that's the other way that you can leave home. The older brother leaves home too, only he doesn't go to another country. He goes and sits on the porch, but the point is he's still far from the father, right? So there is a way to leave home that looks like things that we would call sin. But there's also a way to leave home that looks a lot like what many of us do. Looks a lot like church attendance. It's a lot like Bible reading. It's a lot like being a part of community groups. It looks a lot like rule following and feeling justified in what we can accomplish for ourselves. And we make home in our performance for God rather than the gospel reality that we now have right relationship with him. We make, we make our performance for God our home. And the, and the reality is both of those miss out on what we need most, which is relationship with God relationship with the Father. So whether you are in another country or out on the porch or anywhere in between, it's all alienated from God. And it's important to see what the Bible's saying here, that we were alienated, which led to our hostility of mind and led to us doing evil deeds. And I I reiterate that again because the order is important. If you get the order wrong, you're gonna diagnose the problem wrong and you're gonna run to uh, solutions that can't solve your problem. You gotta get this order right. Um, Joby Martin is a pastor down in Jacksonville and he kind of summarizes what I'm trying to get at by saying this. He says, we are not mistakers in need of a life coach. We are sinners in need of a savior. We're not mistakers in need of a life coach. We are sinners in need of a savior, which means that that, you know, in your mind when you think, man, life is, is pretty good, but if I could only get this one thing or there's a couple missing pieces, then, then my life would be what I want it to be. Like, you, you need to hear this. You don't need better advice or more money or, or kids or a different spouse or however you would fill in the blank to my life would be what I want it to be if only I could blank. That's not what you need for the life that you want. And those things work a little, for a little while, but they don't last, and we know that. So we need to diagnose the problem right, and this is it. Jesus did not come to fundamentally make people nice or to make your life a little bit better. Jesus came to, uh, to deal with the human condition of sin, to deal with our separation, our alienation from God. And again, if you get the problem wrong, you turn to some other solution. Hear this quote from a guy named David Platt. You're probably familiar with him. If you're not, he's a pastor up at the D.C. area now. He says, the modern day gospel says, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life and therefore follow these steps and you can be saved. Basically, Jesus came to make your life a little bit better. It's already great, but he's gonna make it a little bit better. And it's not that God doesn't love you, that's true. This is just incomplete. So listen to this. Meanwhile, the biblical gospel says you are an enemy of God. Dead in your sin and in your present state of rebellion, you are not even able to see that you need life, much less to cause yourself to come to life. Therefore, you are radically dependent on God to do something in your life that you could never do. So we are alienated, and we were alienated, and and this is what we need to hear. This is all of our story. This is not just true about the people who had those crazy testimonies, the people who really need Jesus, you know? This is true about all of us. Every single one of us were alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, desperate for God to do what only he could do in our lives that we can never do for ourselves. Let me ask you a question. What's the best word in verse 21? So as you look at your Bible, what's the best word in in 21? Yeah, for me, it's the fifth word, at least in in the ESV. Somebody said formerly, it's were. And you once were. This is the best word in this because this says that all of our story, even though every single one of us were alienated, separate from God, homeless with this ache in our soul, no matter what we do, we can't get back to him. But Paul says, because of Jesus, that's who you were. That's not who you are. This no longer defines you. And he starts here with who we used to be to remind us that even if you feel stuck and even though we have a long way to go, we can be confident that God has not abandoned us and that he isn't working our lives because You're not who you used to be. Look at what God has done. You were alienated. You were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is who you were. And the questions we need to ask is how does he do this? How does he move us from that position before God and why? So firstly, how does he do it? Verse 22, I'm gonna start in 21. And you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now what? Reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So firstly, how? How does he do it? Paul is describing a contrast here. He says, this is who you were, but now you have been reconciled. This word means to be brought back. You're brought back. So the Bible is saying that Jesus brings you home and it shows us how he does it here at the end of verse 22. He he reconciles us in his body of flesh by his death few verses earlier in verse 20 of Colossians one, it says that Jesus makes peace by the blood of his cross. So we are alienated and, and from God and hostile toward him, but Jesus makes peace by the blood of his cross and he reconciles us back into right relationship with God the Father. Again, he, he is the one who brings us home. He does the work, whether we're in the far country or out on the porch in our own self-righteousness, Jesus is the only one who can reconcile us, who can bring us home. And what we need to know is that being reconciled is more than just being forgiven. Jesus didn't come to just forgive you of your sins. Forgiveness is this, is that you've wronged someone and and you go to them and they have you. You're caught, you've wronged them. If they were to forgive you, they could say, I'm no longer gonna hold hold you accountable to this. I'm not gonna hold this against you. I forgive you, you can go. That's what forgiveness says. Reconciliation says, even though this is the farthest thing from what you deserve, you can come. Yes, you've been forgiven, but you've also been reconciled in the right relationship with God. You can come to me, he says, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. The Bible says that Jesus accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection, again, even though it's the farthest thing from what we deserve, where there was alienation and hostility, he makes peace by the blood of his cross. And again, the you in verse 21, it says, and you, that doesn't mean and some of you. Some of you who had really Bad addiction problems and really bad struggles. Some of you, this was true about, no, this and you means all of you. Me, you, all of us. The Bible is teaching that there is no exception to the who you were reality, that the most fundamental problem in all of our lives is not what's outside of us or our circumstances or the people around us, it's what's inside of us. It's that we were alienated. And so we were hostile in mind toward God and we were opposed to him and we had doing evil deeds, right? What you and I need most in our life is Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is that the gospel meets you where you are. In the far country or out on the porch or anywhere in between, the gospel meets you where you are. And then let's see why, verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So the gospel meets you where you are, and he says, in order to present you holy, blameless and above reproach before him. God will meet you where you are in order to make you who God wants you to be. So Paul says we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and yet who we will be is holy, blameless, and above reproach. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. This word holy, it means pure. Blameless means without blemish, I want a similar idea, but this word above reproach it means unaccusable. It doesn't mean that no one will accuse you of anything. It means that when Jesus is done with you, Even if someone were to make an accusation against you, it couldn't possibly stick because there's no way it's true. Holy, blameless, above reproach. And what stands out to me about that language, about who Jesus is making us, that's character language. Right, it's not about gifting or accomplishment, it's not, man, Jesus uh, reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you talented before him, in order to present you gifted before him. No, it's about character language. It's not the level of your accomplishment or your gifting, it's the level of your character and according to this passage, God is committed to that in your life. Committed to, to making you the person that you have no shot of becoming on your own. God is committed to making you that person through Jesus. Philippians 1 verse six says, I am sure of this. Listen to the confidence in this verse. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Here's what the Bible's saying. You are not who you were, but you are not yet who you will be. You're not who you were, but you're not yet who you will be because how many of us would confidently stand up and say, yeah, holy, blameless, and above reproach describes me perfectly? None of us, right? If we could somehow put up on the screen, even the last week, the thoughts you had, the desires you had, the things that bubble up in you, when you go, where does that come from? If we could just put that on the screen, how many of us would stand up here and be like, yep. Holy, blameless, can't even accuse me, none of us, which is proof that we're not who we were, but we're not yet who we will be, right? And before we move on to talking about how do we get there, which we're going to do a lot next week, what I, wanna know, what I want you to know is even though that's not who we are yet, actually, that's how God sees us now. Even though we're not yet wholly blameless and above approach, this is how God the Father sees us now. This is the difference between what theologians call uh, practical righteousness and positional righteousness. So, positional righteousness is what we are now in Christ. If you're a Christian, if you trusted Jesus for salvation, if you know I'm a sinner and he is the only one who can meet my need, he has met me in his body of flesh by his death in order to reconcile me, to present me wholly blameless and above approach. If you're a Christian and you believe the good news of the gospel, you are what the Bible calls positionally righteous, right now, not 10 years from now when you figured that thing out that you've been struggling with, not five years from now, not any point of the future you, but right now you are positionally righteous because that's the work of Jesus on your behalf. That's the work of salvation, but we're not yet practically righteous. This is what I meant earlier when I said that we're all a work in progress, that none of us would stand here and say, yep, that accurately defines me, holy, blameless, and above reproach. But what we've said for a few years now is that it is our position that drives our practice, not the other way around. The Christian life is one of position that drives practice. Here's what that means. Your practice is what you do It's what you think, it's what you say, it's what motivates you, it's your practice, it's the way you live your life and what should determine your practice is your position before God, not the other way around. Which means it's not what you do that gives you right standing before God, it's the fact that Jesus has come and given you right standing before God that should shape and affect what you do. Again, how are we reconciled? He says, he has now reconciled us where? In his body of flesh by his death. We are saved by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This means that we are in Christ, which means that when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your guilt or your sin or your shame or all the things that you've done and continue to do and the things that I do that prevent us, that make us, that we don't measure up. He doesn't see that. When God the Father looks at us, he sees us in Christ positionally which means he loves us and feels about us and accepts us and we belong to him all the same ways that Jesus belongs to him. That's what it means to be positionally in Jesus. And that's true about us in Christ, but we're not yet practically righteous. So we already said, Jesus is the one who does the work of reconciling us. We were dead, he makes us alive, right? He's the one who does that work of taking us from who we were to who we are. But the question I have for us is who takes us from who we are positionally righteous, but not yet practically righteous to who we will be? Who's the one who does that work, right? Is it Jesus or is it us? And the answer is yes. Yes. Jesus does the work of of not just taking us from who we were to who we are. He does the work of taking us from who we are to who we will be, but God also invites us to play a part in that work. He invites us in. So we don't contribute to our salvation, we were dead, now we're alive because of Jesus, not because of anything we did or didn't do, farthest thing from what we can deserve. That's true, but we play a role in our sanctification. In our changing, in our growing, in our becoming more like Jesus, in our process of becoming holy, blameless, and above approach, God has invited us to play a role in that work. Jesus is committed to it, but we should be too. Let me show you this, Jesus being committed to it. Ephesians chapter five, it'll be on the screen. Paul uses an illustration of a husband and a wife to help us understand the relationship between Jesus and his church. And he says this, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church, he is presenting the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So again, the gospel meets you where you are to make you into who you are meant to be. But I know that when you hear something like that and I say that Jesus is working in your life right now to make you into who you will be, holy, blameless, and above reproach, it's easy to go, I don't know, man. It's easy for us to hear that and go, I I don't feel it. I don't see that in my life. And if we're actually honest, it does sometimes feel like we're going backwards. But as you go deeper, as you follow Jesus for longer, maybe now you have more doubt than you ever used to have and you go, why is that? Why is it that I've been following Jesus now for 20 years but I struggle more with doubt than I ever did before? Right, or or whatever it is. Especially when you look around and it seems like no one else is struggling the way you are. We don't have time, this is a summary for another day, but just a little secret, everyone's pretending. Everyone's pretending they're someone they're not and pretending they don't struggle that much and we're looking at that fake version of them and comparing that to our lives and going, what's wrong with me? Right, if that's you, the promise in the Bible for you today is that the gospel is working. Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The gospel, Jesus Christ, is at work in your life even if it doesn't feel like it. We read earlier in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created. It goes on to say that in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Like, let that set in on you. Think about God, all that he is, the fullness of God, not just dwelt, existed in Jesus, it was pleased to dwell in him. And then it says that in him, all things hold together. You know what fits in the category of all things? All things. All things including you, in your life, in your kid's life, in your parents' life, in your siblings' life. Like In him, all things hold together. He's got you. He's working in your life. He knows better for you than you know for you. And I know that we don't wanna believe that, but it's true. In him, all things hold together. He is at work even in your failures, even in your disappointment. He is at work, but you should be too. Right, we, we are saved by grace through faith in the personal work of Jesus Christ, but grace means that we don't earn God's love. It doesn't mean that we don't put in effort to live our lives in the fact that that's true about us. Grace means we don't earn. It doesn't mean we don't put in effort. We don't contribute to our salvation, but we absolutely contribute to our sanctification. The work of being transformed is a work that Jesus does in us, but it's also a work that he's invited us to play a role into, and this is what verse 23 is talking about. He says, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. And then he says what? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Right, this word continue, it means to remain. It means don't move, stay there. And see, what's happening in Colossae here is there were some folks who had, put their faith in Jesus, been transformed. They're not who they were, once were, but they're not yet who they will be. And they were beginning to have some questions and doubt, feeling stuck, like, why is it not working? And they felt like they needed to add to Jesus in order to get the life they want. And Paul writes them to say this, don't shift, continue in the faith. And when you read verse 23 at first, it sounds like Paul's saying, if you don't continue, then you won't be reconciled. Kind of sounds like he's saying, if you don't continue in the faith, then you can lose your salvation. And and we're gonna hit this a little more next week, but that's not what this is saying. You can say, well, how do you know? Well, "Well, firstly, this if in verse 23, a better translation of this word would be since. That's not just my opinion. It's the same as uh, Matthew chapter four, if you remember, Uh, it's been a while, but in in our series through Matthew, Jesus in Matthew four is in the wilderness. He's being tempted by Satan and Satan comes to him and Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And the Bible says he was hungry. It's the understatement of the world, right? And, and Satan comes to him and he says, If you are the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. And when he says that, same word, he's not doubting whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. He's saying, since that's who you are, since you are God, and since you're hungry, eat. That's what this is saying. Paul is saying, since this is who you were, and since this is what Christ has accomplished for you, then stay there. Stay there. Continue on in the faith. And I love, um, you know. Secondly, he says, what, what do they continue in? It's not continue in your obedience. Continue in your church attendance. Continue in your Bible reading. Continue in your love your neighbor. He says, continue in the faith. Continue not. Uh, resting your, your life on what you can do, continue in the faith, continue believing that your life is built on what Christ has done for you. And then these words here he uses to describe, he says, continue in the faith. He describes what that looks like. He says, stable and steadfast. All right, other translations will, will say established and firm. And the idea of the first word stable or established is it's a foundation. It's what you build your life on. It's the thing. And then it's stable, but you be steadfast on it. Right? Immovable is the idea that you would plant your life on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you would continue in it. Whether it seems like God's working and it's evident about how He's moving in your life or you can't see it at all and it feels like you're going backwards, He says, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So, what we need to see in this is that this isn't a warning. Verse 23 is not a warning. It's not if you continue, then you'll be reconciled. It's it's an encouragement to continue trusting Jesus, to build your life on who he is and what he has done. And the rest of the letter, the rest of Colossians is Paul unpacking what that continues to look like, what that continuing life, what that building your life on the foundation and being immovable from it, he unpacks that. We're gonna walk through that all right now. I'm kidding, all right. Um, We actually are gonna talk next week a little more practically about how we respond, how we don't shift from the hope of the gospel, but for now, here's what I need you to know. This is what this means for us. To remain, to not shift, is to believe today that you need Jesus for your present as much as you did for your past. Right now in this moment, right, by God's grace, you you know him more today than you did when you first started, but you need him no less. Continuing in the faith is believing right now that my need for Jesus is the same as it was the the first day I heard and believed the gospel. Continue in the faith. He says the hope, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, meaning this is better than any other hope. Peter calls it a, a living hope. And he's contrasting to other hopes, which are dead hopes. So think about your life. What do you hope for your life? Whatever that thing is. Again, the way I was trying to get our minds to that space earlier is to say, my life would be what I want it to be if only I had blank. What do you hope? Paul says, this is a better hope, because it's alive. Those hopes, whatever it is, I hope to be married one day, I hope to have kids, I hope to have kids that listen. Right, I hope that I can retire young or have a different career, or whatever. Whatever the hope you have, it's not that those are bad things to hope that, to pray that, to bring those requests to God, it's just that they're dead hopes they can't satisfy you. And I've used this illustration before, but isn't it funny, or interesting probably, it's not funny, um, that most of us, we have what we, if we thought would satisfy us 10 years ago. Not all of it. But like if I were to ask you that same question 10 years ago, what do you think, what, what is your life missing? Your life would be what you want it to be if only you had blank. Most of us, by God's grace, we have those things 10 years ago, and yet we still think, we're playing the same game. The next thing, the next thing, the next thing is going to satisfy me. They're all dead hopes, they're not bad things. They're just not they're not designed and created to hold the weight of your worship. And Jesus is. Paul says, "This is the work of becoming who we were meant to be. We hold on to Jesus. We don't shift." And what I need you to know is that when I say hold on to Jesus, I'm not saying he's not holding on to you. He is. That's what Philippians 1.6 means. He will bring it to completion. He is holding on to you, but he invites us to participate in that work, to stay, to remain, to continue in the faith. And the lie that many Christians believe is that we are invited into a life with Jesus by grace, by what he does for us. But if we wanna stay in a relationship with Jesus, it's about what we do for him. And that's just not true. There is grace for your present in the same way there was grace for your past. And here's what happens when you believe that lie, that there's no grace for your present, is that we end up doing what I said earlier, you just pretend that you're further along than you actually are. You pretend with yourself, you pretend with other people, you pretend with God, right? So with other people, here's what that pretending looks like. You just stay a a few layers above full honesty with everyone else. And you're honest enough, so they don't ask more questions, but you're not really revealing what's actually going on. So in community group, comes time, you know, anyone got any prayer requests? You're like, yeah man, just struggling at the house boss man, just struggle, you know, like we, we, we're honest enough, but you know, we, we never reveal the depth of our addiction, our struggle with lust, how anxious we are, how angry we are, we don't go there, just stay a few layers above honesty, and same way with God, a few layers above honesty with God, our prayers to God are marked by things and other people and traveling mercies, and those are good things to pray for but then never, we never bring ourselves to him. That's what it means to be reconciled. You were gone. Jesus brought you back. And yet we, we live so close to him, pretending that we're someone we're not. And here's the reality. God is not gonna change who you're pretending to be God will not change the person you're pretending to be. And many of us live this shallow life afraid because of of what it's gonna cost if we're actually honest. And I will say, if you're walking in sin, particularly unrepentant sin, there is consequences. But the promise of this passage is that if we go there, quit pretending, quit hiding, and we go to that place of actual transparency, actual honesty with God, with the people around us, Jesus promises that we won't be alone, that he will be there with us. Right, and the good news of the gospel is that he's gonna be there with us. Living on the surface of the shallow space is pretending someone we're not. That's actually the thing that's preventing us from getting what we need most, which is Jesus. I'm gonna end this way. There's a guy named Richard Baxter. He's not a member of our church. He he lived a long time ago. He wrote a book called Spiritual Disciplines. Most people, that's what he's most known for, but he also wrote a book about prayer called Uh, conversing with God in solitude. It's from the 17th century, so it means more than now. I don't know why I'm saying that, but here we go. Um, I love this. He says, oh, how many mercies have I tasted since I thought I had sinned away all mercies? Have you been there before? You get to that space with God in your life where you go, there's no way you could possibly love me. And it's what we sang last week that our our sins thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, his mercy is more. Every single day they're new. How many mercies have I tasted since I thought I had sinned away all mercies? How patiently he has borne with me since I thought he would never put up with me more. And yet, except for my sin and my withdrawing of heart, there has been nothing to interrupt our converse says, I upbraid myself, which means rebuke or find fault. I upbraid myself with my sins, but he upbraids me not. I condemn myself for them, but he will not condemn me. He forgives me sooner than I forgive myself. I have peace with him before I can have peace in my own conscience. Church, we needed him then and we need him now. And Paul says, continue in the faith. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Let me end this way and then we'll sing and respond. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful. That when we come into this room week in and week out, it is not up to us to do enough or be enough to measure up. In fact, you invite us to be honest with the reality that that's impossible for us and you've done that work for us in Jesus. And so I pray um, that by the power of your Holy Spirit as your word was preached, even as we respond, as we sing the same truths, only in melody, that God, would you move and work by the power of your Holy Spirit in our heart? Would you convict us where we are walking in unrepentant sin, where we are walking this shallow life, afraid to actually be who we are? Help us, God, not to pretend. Convince us of your love for us, that it's not based on what we do, it's based on what Christ has done. We're thankful for Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. Let's stand and respond together.